0: Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com.
1: What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- Put that in. I don't f- So the tribe drops its third this district, six to one to the Rangers, For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all
2: we
0: got, one goddamn hit. put out in the 100 of the Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard, John Pieli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, coming at you another Saturday morning. Ton of stuff to get into. Of course, a reminder tweet at me at John underscore Pieli. Of course, we keep the conversation interactive. And great job over the last couple of weeks. I mean, we've, we've really had some good discussions about a lot of things going on in regards to free agent signings, some stuff about some of the pictures and stuff that I posted in regards to events in Major League Baseball. And I tell you, I just want to keep it going, man, because there's nothing that I enjoy doing more than talking about baseball. And. You know, as long as there's things to talk about, there always is going to be. Obviously, you got this during the regular season. You you know, in the playoffs and stuff, you got the stuff going on in regards to which teams are the best, and you know, yada yada yada. What are the best players? And you get in the off season, and the hot stove heats up. You know, in spite of the colder weather when you're not really thinking baseball in regards to the game being played, you're obviously thinking about the best things going on to help all teams. And, you know, I've been all along, and in spite of being a diehard Mets fan, I'm all about parity. I like to see teams improve themselves. And, you know, obviously not that at the expense of other teams, but at the same time, I like to balance playing field. I like when the season starts and every team has – a legitimate chance if not to go out there and win a division title or be let's say a world series winner but a team that could go out there and compete for maybe a wild card spot and you know you look at a couple of the bottom feeding teams in regards to major league baseball let's say the bottom type of teams You know, you look at the Marlins and the Astros and you know that they're probably a couple years away. And you could probably say the same about some other teams like the Chicago Cubs, the Minnesota Twins, other teams like that. And, you know, you hope that they kind of pick it up. And, you know, you saw what happened over the last couple years with teams like Baltimore and Oakland and Pittsburgh. And, you know, teams that invested in a very good farm system end up, once they hit that stride where they start to bring the younger players into the major league level to help out, and they end up panning out like they were expected when they were in the minor leagues and when they were drafted, then all of a sudden that leads to kind of a run. And you kind of feel like teams like that, some of the younger, up-and-coming teams, are on a little bit of a run now that you feel like over the next several years they're going to be very competitive. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of waiting for The the smaller market teams, and not necessarily the smaller market teams, but the teams that are kind of going through a transition and a rebuild to kind of get themselves retooled to the point where they can kind of go out there and compete with other teams. And teams like the Astros and the Cubs are interesting for me, because I think there's a little bit of a misconception. I think we forget that it wasn't really that long ago, really three, four, or even, you know, five years ago and beyond, that the Cubs were one of the highest spending teams in major league baseball. And, you know, you think that, hey, where they're at now, are they necessarily a small market team? I don't think they are. I just think they're in a spot where Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer and the guys are trying to develop a young farm system to get themselves into a point where they can go out there and spend some more money. And one of the things I'm going to touch on in a little bit um, is the uh, posting or the potential posting of uh, Tanaka, the pitcher from Japan, from the Ratuchin Golden Eagles. And obviously there's going to be a lot of interest in him, but don't rule out the Cubs in regards to spending that, that amount of money. The Houston Astros, obviously because of where they've been, because of the fact over the last three, four years, they've been you know, last in regards to payroll, last in regards to Uh, on-field Major League talent and really last in you know regards to being good amongst the 30 teams in Major League Baseball I think we forget that the Astros were a pretty good spending team throughout the 90s and the 2000s and you remember when they made a World Series in 2005 you know where they ranked in payroll and I think we forget about it so easy because it's all about what have you done for me now what have you done for me last year What does the team look like last year? And obviously the Astros have done a lot in regards to jettisoning just about all the veteran players that were involved in that team when they decided to go with the full rebuild mode. But they're a team that I predict over time, once they get some established young players, you know, Korea, McCullers Jr., uh, Singleton, uh, you know, a lot of other young players that they got that we could see at the major league level this season, if not definitely next year, once those players start to emerge and become top players, and obviously the young pitchers that they got, once that happens, they're, they're going to be in a position where they're going to be able to spend more money, and I expect to see them do that. But you know, in regards to you know stuff going on, you got the Yankees signing Brian Roberts, who I, I do have a little bit of a concern with there because Brian Roberts has not been healthy over the last three years. The Yankees get him on a very team-friendly two two million dollar one year contract, where he'll probably play some second base, and if he's healthy. He'll probably be the starter there, but that's been a problem. Last three years, he hasn't been healthy at all. And you know he's a far cry, even at his best, from what he was about five, seven years ago when he was among the top second baseman in all of major league baseball. Remember, the Orioles were struggling there, but you know, at that time, but he was one of the bright spots. When you look at, you know, some of the players that have come kind of afterwards he was kind of the center of the Baltimore Orioles offensively when the team wasn't doing very well. And if you pull up his numbers and see what he did in 2006 and 2007, you'll realize that he was a top second baseman in all major league baseball. The problem is the Yankees aren't getting that. And I think Brian Roberts was aware of it. That's why he signed for 2 million. But uh, there is also the suspicion and the possibility that maybe he used the performance enhancing drugs. Um, He was mentioned, you know, in regards to some of the stuff going on with it. And if, You know, this is a situation where the guy's off the juice. You know, maybe that's because or that has something to do with some of the injuries that's going on now. And plus, once the guy is healthy, and if he is for the entire 2014 season, I think you do have to have some concern over whether this guy is going to be able to perform at a starting second baseman type of level. The guy is very gritty. He's a hard nosed ball player. You know, he's going to give it his all. So that may make up for some of the uh, lack of skills that he has as he gets on in later stages of his career. But I think he's a guy for the Yankees to start with. You know, you got him and Kelly Johnson. If they end up signing Mark Reynolds or Michael Young, uh, you know, you kind of solidify the middle infield and third base in regards to the way the Yankees are going to set things up. You go with a Roberts Johnson platoon based on who's healthy and who's performing, throw Eduardo Nunez in a mix, and it might not be a bad look. Um, In regards to the Mets, a lot of the talk this past week has been, you know, should the Mets have traded Ike Davis? And the issue I have with that is I never am a proponent of a deal of trading somebody just to move them out. Ike Davis is not a cancer in the clubhouse. You know, you don't look at a guy of like, you say, hey, it's an addition by subtraction, just dump them. And I know there's a lot of people that feel that way. And I, honestly, I can tell you, you cannot be any more foolish in those regards. Because Ike Davis is a stand-up guy. He's a guy that uh, the, the teammates like you remember what happened when he was getting when he got sent down you know to the minors last year and what he was going to get sent down to the minors in 2012 had a team kind of unified and you know made it known that that was a guy that they supported 100 percent that all being said like davis had a lousy 2013 season he had a shitty season last year you cannot deny that his 2012 the second half he finished with 32 home runs Everybody was able to parlay that into what we thought in 2013. And though the expectations were not met in regards to taking the next step to being that star type of player that people thought he would be, the results of last year are alarming. You have to be concerned to the way he finished the season. Yes, he was better. He got his average over 200, yada, yada, yada. That was good. You don't want a guy hitting about 170 for an entire season. But he he didn't have that second-half surge that people thought he could have. And as you come into this offseason, the thought was, all right, trade Ike Davis, go with Lucas Duda and Josh Satin, which I'm not necessarily against. I don't have an issue with the Mets doing that. But you don't do that just to get rid of Ike Davis. Also, the Mets trading Ike Davis – you know the same team that ends up going to get Ike Davis is going to have to feel enough and have enough confidence in the fact that Ike Davis could go back out there and be that 30-home run hitter. Because otherwise, why trade for him? Why would a team go out there and have any interest in trading for Ike Davis if they don't think that he could become the 30-home run power hitter that you know, Met fans you know, up until last year really thought he could be? So it takes two to tango. The Mets aren't just gonna trade him to a team that, you know, is just gonna take him on and you know the Mets fans could hope that he sucks and doesn't ever get it back together. That other team has to have enough confidence in Ike Davis to be able to go out there and be a starting first baseman at a major league level. And some interesting things happened. You know, some of the moves you you look at with Seattle Mariners, they signed Corey Hart, they signed Logan Morrison, the Tampa Bay Rays were really in a tough situation because They wanted to bring back James Loney, but they wanted to do it on their terms. They wanted a one, two-year deal. Ideally, they wanted to go one year with an option for a second year, but James Loney wanted three years. And that allowed, you know, that forced Andrew Friedman to go back there, the general manager for the race and say, listen, we're going to have to look at some alternatives. And one of the alternatives was Ike Davis. But Andrew Friedman with the Tampa Bay Rays, the organization, the whole thing, decided that it was more worth it to the Tampa Bay Rays to sign James Loney to a three-year contract, which they didn't want to do, then trade for Ike Davis and take the potential and the thought that this guy could go out there and be a 30 home run guy. Obviously he's going to be cost efficient for a little while. Yes, he's getting a raise in arbitration, but obviously not at the level that they were going to pay James Loney over the next three years. But the raise making that decision is a sign of what the market is for Ike Davis. And we got to be honest with ourselves. Even if you are a diehard Met fan and will do anything to see the team get better and want to see the team improve at all costs. You have to understand that the market for Ike Davis has shrunk and the possibility of getting the return that you would want to get for Ike Davis and let's ask ourselves a question what do you think the return would be at this point ideally you'd like to get a shortstop ideally you'd like to get maybe a starting pitcher a reliever or a couple uh, younger players that may not necessarily start the season at the majors but have huge upsides that we'll see within the next year or two that would all be great if the Mets could pull off a trade like that for Ike Davis and the majority of Mets fans for the exception of the ones that just want to see Ike perform Uh, would probably sign up for that. But the problem is that they weren't able to do that. And you have to understand that the general manager of the New York Mets, Sandy Alderson, is a very shrewd man. He, he He's he's looking out for the best interest of the team and is just not going to make a simple trade for the sake of making a trade. And I applaud him for that. Because, you know, you, know, you look at some players that end up being, let's say, cancers in a clubhouse, like I suggested before. This isn't the situation with Ike Davis right now. Here's a guy that's loved in a clubhouse. He's still liked within the Mets organization. And if the Mets have to go into spring training, with this guy playing first base with maybe a competition between him and Lucas Duda, sprinkle in a Josh Satin, I would sign up for that rather than the sake of just jettisoning this guy off the team just to get rid of him. And, you know, maybe, maybe something happens down the road. You'll, you know, everybody points to the Milwaukee Brewers. Maybe the Brewers decide to bring in a first baseman and the trade of Ike, you know, kind of just becomes something that's not possible anymore. But, you know, as we get into spring training, what do, you, what do you get to see if he's wearing a New York Met uniform? You get to see, you know, maybe that, that he gets off to a good start. Maybe he starts seeing the ball a lot better than he did over the course of the last couple seasons, you know, the second half of 2012 notwithstanding. And I think we could all agree that if Ike Davis goes out there and has a very good 2014 season, that makes the Mets better. But to just simply move him for the sake of moving him doesn't make any sense. And maybe, listen, maybe you see enough in him, or maybe another team seems enough in him. Maybe there's 30 teams that are looking at Ike Davis as opposed to just the New York Mets while he's playing spring training baseball in Port St. Lucie. And maybe you're able to pull out a deal that way. Maybe you could up the ante a little bit and get the type of return you'd like to get for Ike Davis. But if you can't do that, there's no reason to trade him. And there's no hurry to trade him right now. you still got a couple months left. Teams are still filling out their rosters. There's still a number of top free agents out there. The Nelson Cruises, the Shin Su Chus. And obviously, a couple options there for first base. None of them are really that attractive. Kendry's Morales, I think, is going to be a very interesting one to see if he even signs before opening day because of the qualifying offer that was rejected by Morales and what the Mariners have as compensation for losing him would be a first-round draft pick. But, you know, you look at it and, listen, man, maybe the market changes for Ike Davis. Maybe... Uh, There's a team that is intrigued enough. Maybe it's the Brewers, and I know we point to the Brewers because they don't have a first baseman right now, but neither do the Pittsburgh Pirates. Neither do a couple other teams that we're not really thinking about right now. But the possibility of Ike Davis being traded just for the sake of trading him is not going to happen, and I'm glad. I'd rather see him, you know, with the New York Mets in spring training and maybe the Mets taking a chance, another chance to see what he has left as opposed to just dumping him and putting that onus on another team to see if they could get something out of him. But once again, John P.L.A. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, ton of stuff to get into. I got some interviews planned today. We're going to get into Bases Empty blog within the second hour. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Tanaka, the pitcher from Japan, as well as a couple of the rule changes in regards to instant replay and the whole uh, home plate collisions thing that's uh, being negotiated right now. But we're going to take a little bit of a break, be back with a lot more stuff going on. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore PLA as we keep the conversation interactive on the Passball Show uh, Baseball Interview Podcast. I always wanted to work in sports, kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know, one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbro Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one, how to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's it's, the good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different we place thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com.
1: Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com.
0: Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Delasanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And we're your favorite tailgaters.
3: Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball,
0: baseball, hockey—you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio. Are you ready for the tailgaters? <laughs>
3: John
0: tune in into John Show at Oh yeah, welcome back. John Pielli Passball Show MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the program so far. Remember tweet at me at John underscore P.L.E. We keep the programming interactive and like I said, I like going back and forth with you guys talking about all things in regards to Major League Baseball. I'm going to play my first interview of the program today and we got a couple other ones coming up and it's with a former catcher with uh, several different organizations and his name is Greg Zahn and I'm sure you remember Greg Zahn he played up until 2006 with teams like the Orioles, the Blue Jays, the Marlins uh, you know a bunch of different teams over the course of his career but Greg Zahn is also the nephew of former major League catcher Rick Dempsey who played 24 years in the major leagues. Was a very good catcher for a long time with, of course, the Orioles and then later on in his career with the Los Angeles Dodgers. But, you know, you know, Greg Zahn, a very good, very smart baseball man. He works now for a Sport uh, Sportsnet in uh, Toronto covering pre- and post-game shows for the Toronto Blue Jays. And, you know, it's very interesting to see some of the things that get brought up in this conversation because, you know, we talk about the game and the way things have changed in regards to catchers Uh you know calling games for the pitchers and we've talked a lot about the pitchers in regards to how things have changed with the signing bonuses and you know not necessarily refining pitchers before they're up at the major league level so a lot of great stuff to get into and i hope you guys enjoy this spot with uh the current sportscaster for Sportsnet with the uh toronto blue jays up in uh, rogers media and whatever up in toronto greg's on so hopefully you guys enjoy this spot And if you can, just keep in mind that the audio quality is not 100% perfect on this. I tried the best I can to uh, take into account the distortion and everything. And sometimes when I'm on location, when I'm doing these interviews, the quality isn't there. But I tell you, try to listen in the best you can and, you know, some of the points that he get in, gets into are phenomenal, and I really felt that this was worth playing. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot. And like I said, apologize for the little bit of uh, audio difficulty.
1: I afternoon. This is John P. Ellie. I'm here with former Major League catcher Greg Zahn. Greg, how you doing, man? I'm good now. Hey, now, obviously, before you ended up playing, you, you grew up as a, as a nephew of a former Major League Baseball player, Rick Dempsey. Um, tell us a little bit about his influence on you and maybe the influence in you becoming a catcher. Well, it was uh, always something that was.
2: Talked about around dinner table family gatherings. uh, Rick was a 24 year major league player. My youngest Uncle Pat, his big brother, was a catcher as well. played 11 years in the minor leagues. I spent a lot of time with with both of them growing up. They were very generous with their time, especially with Uncle Pat. Uh, I had to spend some summers with him in different minor league towns. Just you know, being around those guys would definitely have an influence on me and, you know, a catcher with the family, like my cousin John, he was a catcher, he was a professional, and the whole event was a part of the social challenge. Part of family you know, said so so there
3: wasn't any other
1: social challenge. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And I thought, you know, what would you consider the biggest, let's say the biggest attribute to catching that Rick was able to show you?
2: Well, it was, it was to be totally to catch the baseball properly, keep it in the straight zone. What it was, uh, give umpires a real good look. It was, it was always about defense, about catching the baseball blocking properly. Um, you know, I didn't have a great career throwing the baseball and throwing out runners. Um, arm, surgeries and whatnot, you know, I had to put that, that earlier on. I could, I could really catch the throwing. He was always about... Making sure that everyone's taken care of first.
3: You want your defense first, and anything you think an of your offense really yeah. would agree with you.
1: No, absolutely, and I tell you, you, know, it was very evident in the way he played the game, and he was always known throughout his you know entire major league career as a very good defensive catcher, and you know the guy could actually hit a little bit, so you know he, he kind of became a you know a, a very formidable catcher for major league baseball for a long time. Once again, jumping out here with former major league catcher Greg Zorn. Now, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about you know you breaking into the major leagues. You know, you started out uh, you know on a major on a major league level with the Baltimore Orioles. Tell us a little bit about you know maybe your expectations. From yourself, and what you thought about you know, your first crack in the big leagues?
3: Well, so, um, it was uh, actually nice a great camp of Europe. That was the team that
2: uh, my uncle had the most success with. The World Series I think with them in 1983. So he played 10 years, he was 24 years in the major leagues with them. Uh, so, it was nice. so it was kind of like it was a legacy. Uh, I went all the way from the bottom, but the minor leagues were up to the big leagues. and uh, you know, <laughs> I realistically, I thought I was going to be touched on the before I get to the president, I but yeah, once I got a chance, to I, I, I realized quickly that guys like him were not that common, that it, he's a special talent, I also realized that um, that wasn't going to be a championship
3: championship, but mentally, I, I thought I could.
1: You know, when you're you know when you're competing at the level of you know the best of the best, you know, you, you you probably realize, hey, you know, everybody at this level has you know has that kind of talent, you know? Yeah, so there's no doubt about it. You know, man, you 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 go from being uh hometown hero, best player on
3: your
2: team, to be talking to mix with, a bunch of guys from all over the world that were exactly that. It is a you kind of have to figure out a way to reevaluate and find out where you it took me a long time. I was like, you know, i 16 years uh, But it took me a long time to get comfortable. I don't stand as a player And unfortunately uh, for me, it still really didn't happen until probably when you're team. Uh, my has on my body and you're scrambling teams. I uh, I was just a little as a 6 season, and that But that's what I'm i could deal, with you I could deal with, you know, uh, you know guys right, so not being able to
1: understand what what it's and now, Greg. Uh, once again, John Pielli here with Greg Zahn, Did you feel that? Did you feel that there was a change in, let's say, the philosophy of, of pitchers and pitching that maybe led to you feeling that you know guys you know couldn't hit spots and stuff like that when you know you you would notice early on in your career what, that they did.
3: No,
2: that's a great question. You're right on point. Early on in my career, fastball probably 80, 89 miles an hour. Know, of the strengths on the history of We they actually didn't really have you know, what we see in our teammates, as you see one guy come out and pull that after that, we that plus going the meeting our that the best to happen. That guy put through the hardest in the game Paul Shoot, shoes was doing 93. 93 is a legit student now. And they used to blow all of my people And there has been a, a change in the ideology, and there's been a change uh, for both bonuses. The signing bonuses have gotten so huge that are going to. Risk a player with a, a premium arm getting her to buy uh, minor own level because they're so much money up front to get their in the organization. And so what happens is they they, they I always psych on the band aid on Bill Gilligan, you know. Velocity. They'll figure out people you know, whatever they can figure out to get the guy in. For the strike so They're very pure about the quality of the back at 5 miles an hour. They just to be able to throw the guy out there and say, Look at what we did and throw this guy, we developed him. Well, there's a major problem with that. When you've got throw that hard and they're relying on off speed stuff to get big hitters out, and they can't command their forcing fastball, and they have huge cutters, and sliders, and splits and change ups, and all these other pitches to get people out, that's a problem these arm problems It's a major reason why we see so many top strap surgeries today in my opinion and until they totally get back to you know uh, a situation where they make the kids on their way out of it for example they just watching their way out and looking at the stats uh, they're going to continue to have problems with long dog as long as problems,
3: they're going to
2: continue to have more surgeries and less uh, six sets of shorter and, and you need to go back to learning uh, how to throw the ball properly, starting with the force so of the ball,
3: followed up the and the
1: no, absolutely, man. Once again, Jackie here with Greg's on, and I tell you, one thing that you know I find interesting, kind of putting everything together that we've spoken about so far, uh, probably the the way the way you were brought up as a catcher, you know, having you know Rick Nancy as an uncle as a mentor, probably led to you getting the, you know getting the the feelings you did about as the game evolving, isn't it, did, right? <laughs>
2: The thing is, that's what it changed. You look at the big picture, pigeons, you've got time
3: because, um, you
2: to get a little change. So, when you wanted to go for pigeons, it's all based off of the full-scale basketball fit. You throw a fastball in an area, which is your idea, to make it an exciting or interesting some thing, something like that. And that's when off-scale stuff becomes appropriate for use the two-seam cross like a sinker, these are all pitches that are designed to start off looking like a full-seam strikes? Pitches that are grown after stab those three-loading strikes with the full-seam
1: Absolutely, man. I tell you, I'm fascinated by it. You know, you know, you know, talking about pitching, and I tell you, you know, as you, you know, as you, as you end up going forward, I tell you, it's something that really kind of, you know, probably helped a lot of the pitchers, if not all of them, that you ended up, you know, covering as a catcher. But you know, in regards to this, do you ever see Major League Baseball kind of maybe, you know, to put it in a, you know, different phrase, get back to basics? Do you think that, you know, Major League Baseball, the way the pitchers are being treated? brought up, you think they could get back to that level that they were before? They could. Uh, you know, the, the
3: big thing to me is, you know, they've been
2: able to eliminate the, the large signing policies. You know, and, uh, I would not say for the chat, I mean, and the reason I say that, you know, a lot of people think I, I, I like that, by example, the company old man, because, you know, I wouldn't 7-year-old, I think I was about 3 year uh, for the government. Yeah, but that was drafted with the first $30 signing bonus. and then do they read the notice, it's the what's mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the, the, the average salary okay. information okay. needs, like whatever it is them to number one do it. You can everybody else, you know, underneath them. Eliminate the agency of the situation. But also give the organizations some breaking and give them a reason to want to look this player. Give them a reason to be patient and really and truly it right with a Lost to grab Give them a chance to stay in the minor leagues for three or 4 years because guys like Troy Goodwin the pitch and the breakers at the high level at 19, 20 years old. We come along once in a lifetime. You're not guys the smartest birds in the world these you're not Craig Goodwin and they need time to season, but they need number one prospects from every other organization to be held back until they on high play. So that they have competition at every level, especially the upper levels of violence. And the signing officers is, I is why it's key to a kids and kids. We've major employers players. $6 million for a kid and can get a It's atrocious if you watch the postseason this year. The funding at the major level awful and a lot of teams don't do it during the regular season, I understand it, but the mathematics of running ball is of course, not easy, but, uh, but you know what, during the close season, every run is pretty, It's a short time tingle and you have to be able to bend in runs, you have to be able to throw strikes, you have to be able to free pass. And it all goes back to, spend five million dollars this kid, looking them the as soon as possible.
3: And every organization shows
2: that winter you don't leave your chicks in the my long enough and the uh, mentally, they're never gonna last. And you know that like lunch hardest for the for the eight, seven, of work in the one example. the things before they talked about we figured out that the fit that little center is
1: so they look at the cutter and slide the slider is off the Oh, absolutely, and I tell you, you know, what's, what's real fascinating about it is, you know, I've had a couple of the older time, uh, you know, players and pitchers and stuff like that, and they, they, what what they always said to me, and one thing they had in common is they said that, you know, the game has changed obviously because of the money, but because of the money, uh, the offensive side of a pitcher just kind of gets wasted. That, you know, back in let's say the 1960s and even the 1970s, pitchers used to take batting practice. Now, because of, you know, of, you know, the amount of money that they're getting paid, and a lot of times the signing bonuses for young pitchers, they don't They don't even take batting practice anymore. Uh,
3: yeah, they don't want anybody to get hurt, like, they're, they're never going to, to pitch, and you know, they don't
2: want to protect that off, hey, they're killing themselves ultimately, they don't, don't, don't bring them when they're trying to throw the fastball at once, and then on top of that. But it'll be given enough ages out their belt before they fall about to the 50s. So you know, can't even, you don't have chemical material for throwing the base. All countries should be ready to throw 280s when they didn't. It's not four
3: years after they're That's a complete waste. But so like I said, it comes back to the mountains, and they're afraid to lose their, their
2: investment you know, on a bio field. So, I mean, if he's going to blow up, he's going to blow up
3: teaching problem again, it's it's built
2: physically it all works off the
1: draftball,
2: everything
1: has to start there, and until we get back to that, we're going to continue this we just able to be patient for whatever believe. No, I you the irony of the whole thing is you talk about the, uh, the, 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 the because of the money uh, you know, a lot of teams want to just say, all right, well, we're going to get our money's worth and get them to the major leagues so they don't get hurt. And without the proper mechanics and without the proper teaching that they end up missing out on, ends up being the reason they end up getting hurt.
2: Exactly. We deal with the for example, the so we so and i go going to go tell you that it's to you know, you have to we out, to you know, to you know, you know, ask you can ask you to ask you to and you to ask you to ask you to ask you to ask you to to ask you to ask you
3: to ask you to ask you to you to we you to ask to you to you to ask you to you to
2: you to you to we you to 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 ask you it. to now they try to figure, oh, let's send it back to the virus since they can't, too, eh? should have that time here, before you it, so we can yeah. so grow stacks on the system. We a little of delivery that you can count on the things that top. So now we're just going to have to go back and try to figure out how to fix the virus. And, you know, we're so able to those out so, oh, there,
1: you so some success. Oh, no, absolutely. And I thought, you know, I wish a guy like Ricky Romero to met the best. I mean, everything I've seen from him, he seems like a stand up guy, you know, a guy you kinda want to root for. Yeah, you know, now it's just a matter of him just, you know, working out the issues and reestablishing himself at the major league level. Exactly exactly what
2: and
1: uh you gotta,
2: you gotta, if the tickets are gonna have to get involved, they're gonna have to get rid and that's ridiculous. And they try to, you know, putting your time, work hard, do this again, but it's only about time. Everything in paid is about time when it comes to financial compensation. Um,
3: so three years,
2: I like Stephen Strasburg with a $6 million soccer loss for something that he's done, something he had 100% against amateur talent that 90% of women will never see a professional baseball field, let alone a the baseball field. That's that. you've got a guy, like a great director, current manager for the. Four of them, four of them, all, nine of them. Uh, John McDonald guys, Jerry, the guys that's right there, they play their role for a team in the big and Along comes some kids he has more money in the bank than he got to spent six or seven years of the show as a role And if you're giving him that money, then he's already doing it. So in high school and in college levels. It's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's actually a slap of the I face. Feel, I feel bad for the guys uh, who, who have to go through that where they see
1: the organization have to shell out all this money for a kid that's really not nothing to no, oh, absolutely. Once again, John Piolli here with Greg on. I'll tell you one thing that, you know, you look at, I, I, got, I got a question for you about it. Do you think that there is, whether it's, uh, you know, shown outward or held inside, do you think there's any animosity for, like, you know, players like that, the players that go around and play 10 years in the big leagues, but as a role player, and then they see somebody that's just coming out of college, you know, making, you know, X amount of million dollars in the big leagues their first year?
3: I yeah, there's definitely
2: there's some resentment there. I don't, I don't see how, how there could be. Um, I'll tell you something you know, from, from my perspective, you know, I, I had I had serious resentment for my life because that's has been years. And, you know, I had to grind and scratch and claw with every dime that I made. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate that you know, I, I appreciate the fact that you these kids are talented and that they're special and they, you know, that they deserve a little bit extra. <laughs> That's a thing, by the Like I said, if doing this against amateur talent, you should be rewarded, players in the average salary of a Major League Baseball player. These are guys would have minded, these guys have been, you know, they've they, they, they bled and they, 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 you know, sweated and, and they've cried on a Major League field. But it's not an easy game to play against the best of the best. I don't know if I said that. just needs to get realistic. Why is it? It's just realistic. It's it's guy and the unions always jumping in and saying, oh, we want, you know, are trying to let everybody make as much money as we can. Well, they keep forgetting that they don't represent these African players. One of those guys is saying that union is. I don't know why they're worried about it.
1: No question about it, man. I thought you hit on some really good points there. Once again, John P. Eric, here with Greg on. Before, before I let you go, obviously, you know, you're doing, uh, you know, work, uh, you know, as a, as a broadcaster now, give us a little outlook on what you expect to see in regards to the Toronto Blue Jays for the 2014 season.
2: Well, yeah, unfortunately, I see him struggling again next right um, it, year. They're, they're putting their hopes on a guy like Brendan Morrow, uh, who I don't trust as far as I can Nice guy, stand up guy, but he can't stay healthy. Uh, it doesn't seem to me. Uh, to be a guy with that warrior mentality. He always finds a way to get himself out of the rotation, whether it be you know, this injury or that injury. Uh, I don't think he's suited to get started. Um, I think the line going to be in a little bit increased. We'll I think if they buy into what uh, Kevin Seitzer is going to talk to them about, especially with the 10 kind of situation already, I like think they're going to be uh, better. But the, the, the defense is really sloppy right here. we are going to have to clean that up. Um, for, for the most part, the personnel is going to do exactly the same. But uh, well, I see them scuffling, and I see them scuffling for probably a couple of years to come. If they don't, make some serious personnel changes. Uh, the Yankees have obviously jumped back into the forecast of the decision. Uh and Tampa's always here and strikes. I'd
1: just like to see the Toronto Bridge really going up the rear of the division for you know, at least another couple of years unless they make some, some wholesale changes. Oh if that's the case, you know, it obviously would, would be a shame. Uh, listen back, I want to thank you for having some time. Really appreciate the discussion. A lot of great points you had up uh, you know during this interview.
0: So it's with my hopes that you guys enjoyed that spot there with Greg Zahn. And obviously, I do apologize for the technical issues that were involved in that. And obviously, any questions, tweet at me at John underscore PL. I'm going to segue right in to another interview I recorded with former Major League pitcher Jim Messier. He grew up a Yankees fan. He made his debut with the Seattle Mariners, pitched with the Tampa Bay Rays, Oakland Athletics, a couple other teams over the course of his career. So here's my interview with former Major League pitcher Jim Messier.
1: This is John Fielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Jim Messier. Jim, what's going on, man? Not too much.
2: It's a freezer in the cold right now.
1: No, nah, absolutely, man. I tell you, you know, it's a you know rough part of year as we get to all set for the winter, and it's probably gonna be a long one, man. But uh, you know, of course, Jim, you had a chance to pitch, you know, in the major leagues for several different seasons. Tell us, you know, first of all about the you know the beginning. You end up uh, you know coming up with the Mariners. You know, you're a little bit of, a little bit of your path from the minors to the majors. Well, but my uh, my first game was actually
2: there in Yankee Stadium, so I grew
1: up around.
2: I was a huge Yankee fan. Uh, my favorite player was Don Mattingly. So, you know, the last months so of his career, I made my debut at Yankee Stadium against turning My hit was the New an and run. So, even over the first day of my big league career, it was by far the best because I was actually playing as a fan. Because it wasn't really a job, but it was a dream come sure. true.
1: Yeah, no question, man. You know, growing up, uh, you know, I would assume you grew up as a Yankee fan, and you know, you had a chance to, you know, as you're 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 learning how to pitch, you know, your dream probably is that, hey, what would it be like to pitch at Yankee Stadium? So, you know, that very first day, you get the opportunity, and you know, I'm sure it must have been pretty special for you. Oh, it was unbelievable. I
2: remember as a kid, I would uh, be in my backyard pretending, you know, I was Jackson, Chris Chambliss, or Ron Guidry, Chris Gossage, and. You know, far playing professional baseball was, you know, just nothing more than really a dream. So for that to happen, it was surreal once I got on that mound and I was introduced to pitch.
1: Yeah, now you know after the nineteen ninety five season, you end up being traded to the Yankees. You're part of the deal that sends Teo Martinez and Jeff Nelson to the Yankees, Russ Davis and Starley Hitchcock go the other way. Uh, you know and that must have, must have added to the excitement. You now, not only have you made it to the major leagues, you have accomplished the goal that you know I'm sure you've been waiting for for a while, and now you get a chance to pitch for the Yankees. Was, uh, I, it, I, guess. I, I it was uh, on the
2: World, World Series. But as far as uh, a young pitcher trying to make in those big leagues, it was a little difficult. Because there were some superstars there that you know, I, I believe I was up and down seven or eight times in, in two years. So on the on one hand, it was, you know, it was an awesome, awesome experience, especially the player of the team that he was as a kid. On the other hand, you're trying to start a career and, and really stick in the big leagues.
1: Yeah, no question. I tell you, you know, like every team has this. You know, teams that go out there and win a World Series championship, they have their core players. They have the players that are, you know, are on the roster the entire time. But nobody ends up getting by without you know, guys like like you and others on, let's say, the 1996 team that are kind of up and down, filling in gaps and stuff like that. Um, You know, what was was the sense you got about that 1996 season? Because, of course, you know, that's the year Joe Torre took over as manager. You know, the year before, you were on the other side with Seattle, with Seattle, you know, with, know, with, with the Mariners organization when they beat the Yankees and knocked them out. Did you get the sense that it was such a special team in 1996 and you guys could go out there and win the World Series Oh, you know, honestly, the talent was
2: there. Um, there was also a lot of veterans. But I think it's just also the sense of, uh, of a New York team. When you go there, it's just uh, unbelievably professional, and there's always a feeling that you're going to win with that team. I, at least I think so. You know, I do think there's any other team where you think, you know, I'm playing for the, you know, whoever, and I'm going to win. But the Yankees, I think that's a different story. I think it's that, you know, just that feeling that other people feel too hard.
1: Again, John Kelly here, with former Major League pitcher Jim Messier. Now, you know you end up, uh, you end up going over um, to to the Boston Red Sox. But after the 1997 season, you end up get, get getting taken in the expansion draft by the Tampa Bay Rays. The 1998 season comes. Yeah, you, know, you finally get your chance to pitch. And you, know, you mentioned before about being a double-edged sword with the Yankees. You know, being one of the young guys. Now you had a chance in Tampa Bay to kind of just establish yourself, you know, get a full season under your belt. Uh, You know, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, I think that I have a special place more from Delaware because that is the place where I actually, I would say, started my career where I knew that I could stay in the big leagues. I started right in spring training. My manager was Larry Rothschild, and even before we played our first game, he told me, you know, you're on the team. You're not even trying out, just do whatever you can to get ready for the season. But you know, when did that ever happen? Usually I'm dialing for some kind of spot somewhere. So that month and a half, I was actually able to do things that I normally wouldn't do. I could try different things and experiment and actually find out what kind of pitcher I am. And I think in that month and a half, I probably I probably had more uh, ability than I did in the last five years or learn more things. And, I got the pitch for the Devil Rays, had a great season, and, uh, you know, we were never very good, but, you know, it's more important at that point in your career to establish yourself when you
1: play for a contender. Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell you, you know, July 28th of uh, 2000 comes, you end up getting traded to the Oakland Athletics, and you know, this this starts, you know, uh, a chance that you get, not only to pitch as an established major league pitcher, but to pitch for a good team. I mean, the open Athletics end up making a postseason, you know, four straight years while you were there. You know, tell us a little bit about your experience pitching for the Athletics and, you know, the sense in pitching for a team that, you know, you probably had sense was pretty good. Right, what well, we're getting, you know, once I was traded for the days, like everything else was
2: a little better because you're moving all across the country in your family and we you, know, you were kind of happy with the double in, but at the same point at that time, it was, it was starting to get tired of losing. It was time to go see if we won the championship some way. So going to the A's, uh, that was almost opposite of going to the Yankees. Uh, it was just, it was just all fun. guys <laughs> over there, it was, uh, you know, they played hard, but it was, at the same time, it was, it was a lot more fun to the play there. Uh, you know, but then again, we lost four straight years, two, two years, we were winning two games of nothing, and then we lost the last three, so it was fun, but, you know, when you get knocked out the players four straight years, it's tough, plus during that time, I started having many injuries and I was never really the pitcher that I was uh, 2000, you know, before.
1: You know, over the course of those four postseasons, you know, you pitched pretty well, but obviously the you know the big thing that stands out is the uh, A's were never able to get past that division series, the first two losses to the Yankees and the Minnesota and Boston. But you know, you know, getting getting a chance to pitch in a postseason, I mean, it's something that you know I'm sure you thought about. You know, with the Yankees, you know, you came up there, you know, you just you know you weren't in a situation where they could use you. But now finally going out there and being a part of the, the Oakland Athletics full-time while they're pitching for postseason games, that, that, that must have been another step for you, right?
2: Well, that was definitely a full again, It was almost like I was a rookie game because, of course, I go to the playoffs against the Yankees. <laughs> so that's uh, you know, that's another dream. You're, when you're a kid, not only you're pretending you're playing with the Yankees, but you're pretending you're getting the Yankees out. So that was uh, another
3: amazing experience.
1: And once again, John Pelle here, a former major league pitcher, Jim Messier. Now, you know, what, you know, you were you were born with a little bit of a deficiency with your feet, which ends up, you know, obviously affecting the way that you're able to pitch. Uh, what was what was the biggest thing that you had to work on, or anything additional you had to do, to uh, to get by with the issue that you have with your feet?
2: Uh, well. Uh, there was a, I was right club foot, so what happened is I, I didn't have any real strength or balance in the so I would actually strive, strive shorter than everybody else. It's one good thing I never stepped in anybody's hold, but I had to use a lot of upper body, and my mechanics weren't something that you would strive to have as a pitcher. Uh, so I never really developed a good curveball slider, it was very really difficult for me to build based on that. So I had to learn something different, and I found. Uh, it to throw a screwball. college coach named Rich Folkers, he was actually a former major league pitcher,
3: uh,
2: Taught me how to throw a screwball and it became my signature to pitch. Uh, then later on, um, once my knees started going, I think I just had to learn how to be resilient and uh, just go out there every day and give it everything I got because uh, I wasn't 100%.
1: Yeah, now you end up, uh, you know, in 2003, you're given the Tony Canigliero Award. And, of course, Tony was, uh, you know, a a very promising prospect with the the Boston Red Sox and ends up having his career, you know, pretty much ended with a a really bad uh, bad head injury. Now, uh, you know, what does that award mean to you? And, you know, how did it feel to receive that? It means a lot.
2: I mean, uh, when I was a kid, I never realized you know what I was accomplishing as I got older. Um, so once I started really becoming injured and and realizing how hard it was to you know to stay in the big leagues, that that award uh, was was something special because it did take a lot of extra work to keep myself in the big leagues because I didn't have the same ability I had to rely on you know a little more emotional control.
1: And yeah, I, you, you know, you mentioned before about throwing a screwball. I mean, it's a, it's a pitch that, let's be honest, I mean, in Major League Baseball is almost uh, is almost becoming extinct. Uh, what do you think in your own mind is keeping, uh, you know, let's say the, you know, the pitch that you were able to throw very successfully for continuing to be taught to other younger pitchers? That's the, problem, the reason why I
2: don't believe it's a popular pitcher because it's uh, very hard on the arm. Uh, the reason why I'm throwing is because I use so much upper body and open up my hips and kind of pull sideways, where I really wouldn't damage my arm as much as somebody that would have the normal mechanics of driving forward and actually coming down through the ball instead of across. So, I think it's one of they don't want to hurt hurt players, um, and I think they go to you know throwing more curve change. I'm sure there'll be some somebody that will come along that will have a problem with throwing other pitches and maybe this you know, this is my last shot, I'll try to screw ball, and, you know, I, I think it'll, it'll be around, it'll, it'll still be very rare, but I think you'll see, you know, a couple pitches in the feature that might throw it.
1: Hey, once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Jim Messier. Now, you know, you had a chance to pitch in the big leagues for parts of 11 seasons. You know, you made the postseason a couple times with the A's. You got to pitch with your hometown Yankees. Is there one moment in your Major League career that stands out for you that you look back on and you say, hey, you know, that was that was the pinnacle moment for me? i my Major League, yes. Um, there was a time in
2: 2000. I came into a game we were in September at the end of the I, I believe it was September, towards the the game. we were fighting for Spawn to, to play against the Seattle Mariners. And I remember coming into a game, and I wasn't feeling very confident. It was just one of those games that had nothing to do with my the best year of my career, but I guess I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I uh, had to come into the game, and I was second and third, and one out, and we were, I believe, we were tied and I had to phase Ricky Henderson, uh, A Rod and Edgar Martinez. And I remember just getting out there and I walked Ricky Henderson on five pitches and they weren't even really close. And I remember thinking, you know what, you just lost it because you were you you had no confidence. I had nothing to do myself what I do with my confidence level. That's how I talked myself out of that situation and went on to strike out Arod and and Martinez. And you know, eventually saving the game, I want on to close the players on the last day of the season. So it's difficult for, for me because I learned after that how to more or less control my emotions and, and realize that i got to get up every day and find out where my mind is before I step on that
1: mouth. Yeah, absolutely, man. Listen, Jim, I want to thank you for having some time. appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. And, uh, you know, best luck to you in the future.
0: Solid first hour there. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed that spot with Jimmy Messier and of course Greg Zon. Thank you to both of them. Uh, we're gonna break for about five minutes. We'll be back with another solid hour, some more interviews, and bases empty blog right here on the passball Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. <laughs>